Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to Making Headway Podcast. This is Aaron. And this is Mariah. And today we're here to talk to you a little bit about the science behind traumatic brain injuries. We have a researcher by the name of Paige Martin, who just happens to be my sister-in-law. Very convenient. Right. (laughs) Mom aficionado. She does everything and she does it so well. She has her BS in biology. She has a BA in psychology, a PhD in biomedical medicine, all from the University of Maine all while getting married and having kids. And like I said, she does it all. And she does it with a smile on her face. Her doctoral and postdoctoral work were in the lab of Dr. Greg Cox. He's up in Jackson Lab up in Bar Harbor. They focused on creating and characterizing novel models of rare neuromuscular disease and assessing genetic modifiers of phenotype severity. Don't be scared. Paige is here to talk to us today about um, mouse models and how they use that to study traumatic brain injuries and maybe some up-and-coming research that we might be able to find out about. So welcome, Paige. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, we're excited too. Uh, We would love to hear more about what's going on in the mouse world. How are we we researching, right? (laughs) How are we researching these brain injuries? Yeah, so this isn't completely my area of expertise. Like you said, I do my most of my work was in um, neuromuscular diseases. So that's like ALS or Lou Gehrig's. But there's this huge kind of amount of overlap between brain injury and ALS and Alzheimer's that people kind of really know about and are starting to start to figure out. And I think, you know, when you think about like what you're reading in the news and stuff, some of the most common kind of examples are football players, um, people from the military, those people are sustaining repetitive traumatic brain injuries. And in those populations, there's um, a higher likelihood of having ALS or Alzheimer's or other neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, I literally just read that today that something like 60% of veterans who have brain injuries are Ha, uh, tend to have Alzheimer's or something like that. Yeah. I'll see if I can dig up the report I was reading. It was yeah. kind of fascinating and terrifying too. It is. Mm. Yep. Yep. So those populations especially are kind of bigger groups that are sustaining more similar injuries to each other. So they're really easy to aggregate and study. And yeah, they have a lot higher incidence of kind of these neurodegenerative diseases that have both a genetic and an environmental kind of sides to them. So while my expertise is not completely in like brain injury, I do understand pretty well neurodegeneration um, and how like when we injure our peripheral nervous system or even our central nervous system, the cascade of events that's going to happen and how your body starts to heal those. Interesting. I All never right. really thought about the ongoing effects yeah. of having repeated head injury causing yeah. disease. That's interesting. Yeah, yep. it's like the domino um, It's not effect. completely worked out and definitely using mouse models and other animal models is helping to kind of limit the number of factors that are kind of adding to the overall findings, right? Because humans are different from one another and all of our injuries are different, where you sustain your injury and what kind of injury you have. But using mouse models can be really helpful in kind of limiting those and making it much more specific. Okay. 
So I assume yeah. we're saying mouse models. We're not talking about <laughs> Minnie and Mickey walking down a runway. So <laughs> what do you not. mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. So mouse models are the inbred mice that we use to study. And so there are different types of mice, just like there are different types of dogs. You know, you have Chihuahua and Labradors, um, and there's different types of mice that are genetically distinct. And we can take advantage of having these super inbred mice that are basically mini clones, right? So they're brothers and sisters, but they're they're like tons of identical twins. Um, and so being able to study identical twins or you know, whole sibling families of twins per se makes it much more easy because any one little change you make um, is the only change you've made. Um, and everything else should be the same genetically at least. Cool. So it makes it a lot easier to kind of have cleaner fighting findings. It's like the only time that inbreeding is a plus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so we've taken advantage of, you know, inbreeding to make them perfectly the same to really create this tightly controlled experiments cool. as much as we can. Yeah. So then what are we doing to take those mice and maybe are we trying to simulate a brain injury and then see how they react or yeah. um, tell us about how um, researching brain injury works? Yeah, that's great. So there's a number of different kind of brain injuries that we can kind of simulate or model. And so I've kind of dug up some of these um, and there's a lot. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but we can model traumatic brain injury and especially concussion or diffuse axonal injuries. We can model What does that mean, diffuse axonal? Um, That's like when you get hit in the head and it's going to have all over your brain. So axons are the... um, part of your cell, uh, the neuron cell, and that's when it kind of spreads throughout all of those. So kind of like a concussion. Yeah, but um, I think the diffuse axonal ones are going to be even more severe. Concussion's considered a mild traumatic brain injury, obviously they're still quite bad. Potentially what I suffered from. Exactly. Which was a subdural hematoma. Okay. Yes. So we can model TBIs pretty well. We can model stroke and intracranial aneurysm, which I know is what Aaron had, and not just mm-hmm. aneurysm, but also uh, the SAH, so the subarachnoid, I can never say Aaron. Subarachnoid <laughs> hemorrhage. <laughs> Thank you. And from the vein. <laughs> it is a tongue twister. Yep. So okay. it's, you know, the rupture of that aneurysm, specifically kind of between the brain and that thin tissue that covers your brain. And there are mouse models for that, which oh, is cool. pretty cool. Yeah. So again, like, I know that you guys have obviously probably thought about brain injury, but it's a really broad category and everyone's injury is different, especially the TBIs are very different because you can have really broad ones that you kind of smack the whole of your head. You can have very specific ones like a gunshot wound to your head would be a traumatic brain injury. And so trying to model all those different types, um, there's different ways we can do that, which is kind of cool. All right. So how do we do that? Yeah. Okay. How do we do that? How do we do that? (laughs) So the The most common way to do this really is kind of mechanical force. So there is the fluid percussion model, which basically takes a syringe with fluid in it um, and then uses a weight to push that syringe at a specific speed and pressure. And then that little fluid would come out like water out of your hose, but at a pretty fast pace. And they would spray that onto the brain of a mouse. Um, So that's basically spraying fluid in a very specific spot at a specific pressure and speed to induce a 
brain, so a TBI type injury. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be a more focal kind of one because it would be kind of in one specific spot rather than all over. Okay. So that would actually be without a skull. So they would remove, they would do um, remove the skull. And so in a lot of these models, you'll see that they remove the skull or a portion of the skull in order to access the brain specifically. And part of that's because mice skulls are different a little bit than human ones. So they're, they're a little bit thinner. Also, mice are just smaller altogether. So the thickness yeah. relative to ours is obviously a lot smaller. So using some of these, like the fluid or even like a little rod that you would hit the head with, it might puncture that skull altogether, which would create a different type of injury. Okay, I see. But there are closed brain ones, so closed skull ones, skull models, like the weight drop impact acceleration model, which sounds exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> um, you just uh, drop a weight on their head in a controlled manner. And so a lot of these have to be designed with restraints because obviously mice are living animals. And if they're moving around a lot, you can't get that from mouse to mouse. So if you're doing 20 mice in your mm. experiment, you wouldn't be able to get it exactly the same every time. And that's what you want to do. You want to recreate the same injury every time so that any um, therapeutics you might try or any other kind of therapy approaches, you want that to be the only difference. Yeah. The fewer okay. like outside factors, the better. It makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Okay. All right. Yep. So you guys are literally scooping up the mice and bopping them on the head. <laughs> Exactly. That's, okay. a, that's exactly oh what I thought the first time I saw this type of model. I couldn't stop thinking of exactly that. And so, also, I feel like we should take a moment and just say thank you to all the mice out there I, yes, who are helping yes. us humans out. Yes. And yeah. I will say um, we do try to limit how many mice we use. We try to use the least amount of mice to get the most amount of impact. So we're not just willy-nilly, you know, whacking mice on their heads to just see what happens. It's a very, very controlled experiment and Absolutely. how many mice we use. And then there is a model where it's like a free fall. So basically it's like a piece of paper um, and it would rip and then the mouse would fall on this foam pad. That's a little harder to control because you can imagine like a mouse might fall slightly differently every time, yeah. um, even if you had mice that are the same size. But it might be more kind of representative of a human injury. So right. yeah. there are pros and cons to all of these, but basically they all sustain some sort of hit to the head, which is what we want. Okay, so how are we using these brain injured mice? What are they doing to help us? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So what we can really kind of learn from these is how the brain responds to injury. And so when you have that traumatic brain injury, we know that there's kind of this cascade of cellular events. And so it's not only that initial mechanical impact, it's the inflammation that happens afterwards and the cascade of hormones and other cellular changes that can be just as damaging to your brain as the actual mechanical changes. Oh, interesting. Um, so it like triggers yeah. a chain of events. Exactly. That then predicts how you respond and what's going to happen. Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And so the chain of events is oftentimes in order to help your body to start heal. But with inflammation, as you know, over inflammation can be bad, especially within the brain, because it can create too much pressure. Right. Um, and that would be damaging to your brain. And then 
the other some of the other events while they can stop the immediate damage sometimes actually kind of hinder the long-term regeneration of certain tissues interesting Mm-hmm. Okay. So because, are you saying because of that added pressure and that added inflammation, it's kind of clogging the path for all the good stuff? Sometimes it it's can overdoing be. it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. So kind of understanding first how the brain responds um, and what pathways are being triggered, what things are kind of being turned on or turned off that would normally be on, and kind of we can take advantage of those pathways um, and either help them or kind of um, halt them if we think that they're actually impairing kind of long-term um, healing. Wow. Yeah. And so, we do that in mice as do that a in mice. representative to be able to do it in humans? Like, yep. Do we have yep. that ability? Oh, cool. Yep. So um, in mice, it's really great because, you know, after the injury, you know, you can do a, a bunch that you have injury and then you can take their brains and you can do really specific molecular analysis um, to see what kind of proteins are turning on and coming on um, and what ones are kind of going away that would normally be on. So you can compare them to a non-injured like siblings to see what are the changes that are happening in response to this brain injury. Cool. Um, And so that can really help us to kind of pinpoint things to target for Uh, therapeutics. So, you know, when you think about drugs or small molecules, there's always kind of a mechanism of action you might hear. And that really just means like how they're going to work and where they kind of fit into the overall system. And so knowing more about that system can help us to figure out where to plug in these drugs that we might already have. Cool. Or what drugs to design. (laughs) Okay. So it really guides, it's guiding treatment so that we have something new to give to doctors. Exactly. Cool. Yep. Um, And then it can also help us kind of understand, you know, the genetic and environmental factors that might contribute to the healing process. Genetic is a really big one. You know, humans especially are all very, very different. We all have the same genes, but we have slightly different variations of those genes. Um, And so that can make you susceptible to certain things like heart attack or stroke, but it can also change the way that your body is able to heal. And so having certain variants in certain genes may make you less likely or have a poor outcome after a traumatic brain injury. Hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yep. So is there anything that we can apply? Like, are you learning things that we can apply to maybe some of our populations with traumatic brain injuries? So I think the starting point right now is figuring out what genes um, and what variants might be involved in kind of outcomes regarding healing and then being able to say and look at a human patient and say okay you have this variant so we think that this type of medicine will be best and so that's called like personalized precision medicine and that's really kind of just looking at you and who you are genetically and figuring out what medicine is going to work best for you in this situation. Wow. I wish there was more of that available. That's amazing. I mean, some of us just think we're tough, but I guess it's it's our genes really that are doing the work in some cases. Yeah. And so there are some people, I mean, you think about football players and you think about football players who are in the exact same position, they probably sustain the same amount of concussions, but some of them are going to go on and get CTE or Mm -hmm. chronic encephalitis is that what it is Erin? I think Um, so. I don't remember. (laughs) remember. Uh, And basically that that's an inflammation of the brain Mm -hmm. after having sustained so many concussions and some of them are going to be fine and it might be 
genetics yeah. or it might be how many concussions you've sustained yeah or potentially other outside factors too absolutely I, I mean like for example on 23 and me now you can tell like they flag certain factors and um, on my mom's side several of us came up as having the gene for alzheimer's and of course that made some of us freak out and i happened to be maybe i'm just silly but i just was not freaked out because i was like well there are so many other things that contribute to whether you actually get it or not. Yeah. You can't spend your life worrying about it, but it, right. it is pretty fascinating. Yeah. So it's really interesting you brought that up because I bet the gene you're discussing is APOE. I think, yes. Does that sound right? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so everyone has the APOE gene, but we have different versions of the APOE mm-hmm. gene. And APOE... Um, and the version that you have has actually been found to be uh, implied in the healing process of traumatic brain injury. So that's kind of, yeah. So APOE is really secreted by certain cells in your brain um, after injury. And so basically they have found that mice deficient for APOE actually have worse outcomes from ischemic stroke. Yes. And mice with, so there's three variants or versions of APOE. There's E2, which has been implied in Parkinson's, E3, which is kind of considered the neutral or everyone has it kind of form. Um, And then E4, which is the one people talk about associated with Alzheimer's. So the mice with the E4, which is the Alzheimer's one, have actually been found to have larger blood or infarction after having a stroke compared to mice with E3. And then also mice with E4 were found to have, they were impaired in their ability to repair their blood-brain barrier, Hmm. um, which is that barrier between your blood vessels and the rest of your body and your brain. So that's really important because obviously your blood goes everywhere. And if you have something in your blood, you don't want that in your central nervous system and in your brain, that would be Mm -hmm. bad. And repairing that, patching that up is really critical. So the, the mice with the E4 were not able to repair that as well as mice with E3. So that's really interesting. Wow. So that basically you're saying the E4, the mice yep. with the E4, yep. when they have the stroke, the infarction's the area of tissue that's damaged. So they have more yeah. damage yes. and then they can't repair that damage as well as somebody else. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so, that... so having a simple variant can cha- totally change how broad an injury might be and change how easily you're able to respond and repair that injury. Wow. So yeah. are they doing, are they having people test and getting these panels? And then what, like, what do you do with that? Is there yeah. something, or are so we right still now, figuring that out? Yep. So um, APOE is a pretty easy one to kind of test people for which variant they have. And so with humans, when we look at human patients, um, again, especially with TBI or stroke, everyone's stroke is different, everyone's TBI is different. But if we look at enough people um, and we see enough people with E3, E2 or E4, we can start to make some trends and say people with E4 have these types of outcomes and people with E3 have these types. And I didn't find, I don't remember if I did as much research on the human work yet, but I haven't looked into how much that has been worked out in the humans, but I know it is ongoing what it really means regarding therapeutic approaches right now is not much because there's nothing currently to kind of overcome having that kind of genetic variant versus another Hmm. but it might be helpful regarding other kind of uh, therapies or how you uh, approach something yeah i I know that they're doing some work in 
specifically nutrition to yep. like take a look at people's genes and tell them like what dietary changes to make that make the exactly. most sense for their body specifically. So it would be amazing if that applied to so many more <laughs> parts of healthcare, but specifically right. the brain. I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, well, we already <laughs> have it with cancer treatment. Like they do mm-hmm. a lot of targeted therapies and treatments. So it's yeah. interesting to know they're thinking about that for other fields yeah. as well. Because you yeah. don't really think of it when you think no. of a brain injury and having yeah. a medicine for a brain injury. Most of us didn't have a medicine for a brain injury. You just kind of wait it out and see what happens. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> for the best. Right. Right. So that, that's yep. cool to know that there's that's something really, out yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, that APOE especially is, I think that will be an interesting player in the future because it's it's kind of being found to be connected to a lot of these neurodegeneration like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and ALS, and then also playing a role in how people heal from brain injury. So yeah. it'll be really cool to see where that goes um, and what we can kind of do to overcome certain variants. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else that you um, found in research that might be interesting yeah. for someone going through brain injury right now? <laughs> so for someone going through, I think that one of the most interesting things that's going on right now, especially from you know, our mouse model work, is that there is work being done to repurpose FDA-approved drugs. So there's this whole catalog of drugs and small molecule therapeutics um, that have already been approved by FDA. And really what that means is just that they're not toxic, they're not going to hurt you, and that they know that they're going to be okay. And now what you can do is take those and say, let's see, what was the one I found? So one example of that is a statin, a Lipitor. Yeah. Yep. So that's atrovastatin. Um, and really that's normally used to treat high cholesterol. Yeah, it's very um, common. Exactly. And so it's really used to kind of hopefully reduce stroke or heart attack, but there's some kind of ongoing research to see if having the statin ahead of time before your traumatic brain injury would actually decrease or change the overall outcomes. So that's not super specific to everyone, but there has been a number of studies done with older adults already on a statin that sustained traumatic brain injury. And they compared them to a similar population who was not on Lipitor. Um, So in two studies, they actually found that there was no significant difference in outcome. But in one study, they did find that it decreased the mortality following hospitalization for TBI. Hmm. So it's kind of hard because because the work that had been done with this drug in the animal models had really strongly suggested that it reduced a neurological deficit, it really decreased early brain injury after SAH specifically through That's these what I kind had. of exactly through <laughs> anti-cell death effects and it also kind of improved the functional incomes um, functional being like motor and cognitive deficits three months after uh, TBI. And so it's hard to say why when we find certain drugs are working in animal models, but not in humans, why is there not necessarily that translational effect? And I think especially with these FDA approved drugs, because it's so easy to get them into trials because you don't have to do as much work. It's really a nice and tempting offer, but they don't always work the same way that they worked in animal models. And part of that can be, I mean, think about with your brain injuries, how long it took from being in the hospital to figuring out what the injury was. I mean, that was a matter of what, 
hours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But hours is a long time. Right. As far as what's happening in your brain. And so being able to give a drug as soon as possible um, might make the difference. So with these mouse models, they're not they're not doing the injury and then waiting hours to give them a drug. Right. They're giving them a drug right after. So that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. So we'd have to have a better way of picking up that someone's having a neurologic event and getting right on that. Right. And so, I mean, obviously we could change the way we do mouse models. We could say, okay, we'll do the event. We'll wait four hours and then we'll give them a drug. But then we might miss drugs that could be working like this one, but just aren't being put into a therapeutic window early enough in humans. So it doesn't mean that this isn't ever going to work for humans. It just might mean that we need to figure out the best timing for it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's a whole nother world. I know. It's very fascinating. (laughs) It is. Truly. So what did, had you found more that you wanted to share? Uh, let's see. What else is there? I could go on and go on and on. (laughs) Um, uh, there is a really cool, so, so not only do we have like the FDA approved drugs already. So those are, those are drugs that we already know. Probably someone's producing them. We know they're safe. There are also always these novel compounds that can be designed or created. Those are gonna be harder to get into clinical trials because you have to do a lot more efficacy to studies and toxicity to make sure that the drug itself is not going to make a normal person sick, let alone someone who has already sustained an injury or a disease. So you're talking um, new drugs, novel new drugs, just something totally new, totally not already new. FDA approved. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So there is a new drug that has been worked out in Um, some animal models or in a mouse model specifically that shows a lot of promise and it's targeting the integrated stress response, which is one of those cellular kind of cascade pathways that happens when you sustain a brain injury. So like we were talking about earlier where you get hit and then this whole chain of events happens that could cause damage, more damage. Okay. It's like a domino effect, right? Okay. So you get hit and then you're your body starts kind of turning things on and turning things off and opening doors and closing doors to let certain players in or stay out um, in order to hopefully appropriately respond to this injury, but not always. And so the integrated stress response is one that comes on after brain injury. It's also one that we see that gets turned on during like a peripheral neuropathy, um, like Charcot-Marie Tooth, which is an inherited peripheral neuropathy. And this, at least in some of the work that I've worked with collaborators on, when we kind of dampen this response, we can actually see an improvement or a less severe version of a peripheral neuropathy. So I was really interested to see that this is also a player in brain injury. So, because yeah, when you say peripheral neuropathy, that's like your fingers and toes fingers, not having toes. good feeling. Hmm. So yep. that's your further nervous system not inside your brain nervous system okay yep Yep. exactly and so so there is this integrated stress response inhibitor so it's stopping that response and in a mouse model for like a concussion mouse model they basically gave them this small molecule that kind of inhibits this response and so what they found is that it almost completely reversed the memory deficits associated with TBI in these models. So they had a group that they gave the concussion to, um, and then within that group, they gave some the small molecule and some no small molecule a vehicle, so a placebo. 
the ones with the placebo had pretty high errors. So the test they used is called a water maze. So it's basically this maze with a bunch of different arms that's full of water and a mouse can swim in it. And the first time you do it, they have to look through all the arms to find the arm that has the platform to get out. Then you keep testing them. So you keep putting them in the same maze with the platform, the escape in the same spot. They should learn where that spot is. Mm -hmm. And they do. They're very fast at it once they know where it is. But once they've sustained the head injury, they start re-looking again. They can't remember where that escape is. But when they were given this small molecule or this inhibitor, they were able to still remember. So those deficits weren't as present, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think a lot of our concussion people, I'm sure, can relate with the fact that, you know, you get hit and your memory is just messed up for a Mm -hmm. long time. Yeah. I mean, post-concussive syndrome, we see a lot of people sending us messages and talking to us about those long-term effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we could stop that from happening, their quality of life would be so much better. Exactly. So that work was done in like 2017. um, And I did also find that in 2020, they looked at this same drug from the same research group in mild repetitive head trauma, which was a little different than the concussion because the concussion was a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. And the mild repetitive one is going to be more like a football player or a military um, would sustain. And they also saw improvements in that group too. So hopefully this molecule would be more broadly applied to the kind of overall umbrella of brain injury. But again, this hasn't gone yet to human clinical trials. And even if it does, it's really hard to know, are we giving it to the patient at the right time? Is it early enough? Or are we too late? Are we giving Mm -hmm. it? Is it just, is the damage too far gone already? Mm -hmm. So we'll have, that's something that they can start to test with the mice and we'll see if they do. So incredibly complex. Yeah. And Um, the the translation to human trials, that's pretty amazing to think of. I never have thought about that before. I mean, how do you test or I mean you can't know who's having a brain injury in advance of their brain injury necessarily so that's complicated (laughs) exactly yeah yep so yeah it's hard and I mean the other thing to consider is that they are using a mouse model that are all identical and they're all receiving exactly the same head injury and now they've tried it in two different models three actually because one they were looking at two so they've looked at three different models and it works for those three models in this one mouse. But does that mean that on a whole, will it work for all people? Right. Um, and again, the integrated stress response, that's gonna have genetic variants in it. Mm. So some people's certain cellular response, even in this specific pathway might be different than other people's. So it's hard to know how this inhibitor will work. So that's why when you ever see animal research versus human research, you need a lot higher numbers for how many people you test versus how many animals you can test. Gotcha. Yeah, because we're not all genetic clones like the mice are. <laughs> they're all identical yeah. twins. Absolutely. Well, I, I got to tell you, Paige, I thank you so much. I mean, You're we welcome. need people smart like you and everyone else that's out there figuring this all out because it's so complex. Yeah, and, and I, then... love, I love that 
this sort of window into this because as average Joes, this is not stuff that we know about and it's kind of fascinating to see what's or hear about what's happening behind the scenes and research and how it works. Yeah. I feel like we walk the streets and have no clue. Right? <laughs> yeah. That so, there are people really... out there that care to help us. I'm just impressed. We're trying. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see where this field goes. I think, I think that there's a lot that can be done. And in recent years, there's been a lot more efforts, I think funding wise and interest wise regarding looking into brain injuries and figuring out ways that we can fix them. Um, and especially again with the complexity and the overlapping between Alzheimer's and ALS and brain injury and starting to untangle what's going on here. Yeah, so many yeah. connections. Exactly. Um, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. It feels yeah. like the brain is a little bit of a mystery still in terms of like how oh, things absolutely. are linked. So, but yeah. Very complex. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really educational, I have to say. <laughs> I know. I've learned a lot. <laughs> and um, to our listeners, if you have any questions about this, obviously, um, if you're anything like us, you're learning a lot through this episode as well. If you have questions or have anything you want us to revisit in the future, we may try and yank Paige back in to answer some questions we get. So feel free to reach out on social media at Making Headway Podcast or on our website, makingheadwaypodcast.com. Shoot us a note on our contact form and we'll do our best to aggregate those questions and maybe do a follow-up with Paige and we'll repeat not only our thank you to Paige but our thank you to all the mice out there who are contributing their brains to science (laughs) all right so we will talk to you all soon thanks for joining us on the Making Headway podcast for more information and show notes visit makingheadwaypodcast.com subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com.